Wild Lives by Phonographic. Hey, I'm Rochelle McIntosh, and welcome to this special episode of the Wild Lives podcast. Over the past few months, we've seen millions of Australian animals lose their lives, their habitats and food sources decimated as bushfires rage across the continent. But what happens after the fires have passed? Can our bush and its wildlife come back from this? In this episode, renowned ecologist Professor Christopher Dickman explains how our natural environment will rebuild itself. Tim Faulkner, president of Aussie Ark, talks us through their ingenious project to save koalas in the wake of these fires. And Chad Staples, who led the mass rescue at Mogar Wildlife Park, shares their fantastic plan to help native animals after the crisis. And we'll also talk through exactly what you can do if you run into an injured or ill animal in the months to come. Now, before we get chatting to our guests, here's Dennis with an overview of what's been happening. Parts of Australia have been in drought since 2017. So by September 2019, when the first of the major fires ignited in the Northern Territory, Queensland and New South Wales, they spread ferociously. As we endured our driest spring on record, sparks also erupted in the states of Victoria, Western Australia, South Australia and Tasmania. By November, the fire front spanned some 6,000 kilometres, with conditions becoming catastrophic as we moved into summer. Some of the blazes started accidentally, others were the work of arsonists, and some were ignited by lightning strikes. In fact, some of the blazes were generating their own weather systems, leading to more thunderstorms, lightning, and in turn, more fires. By January 8, 2020, the bushfires had been burning for over four months across the country. Fueled by years of drought, extreme heat, and ever-changing gale-force winds, Massive evacuations took place in several areas, but 28 people had lost their lives, and thousands of homes, along with entire towns, were taken. Nearly 107,000 square kilometres had been affected. That's an area about the same size as the entire country of Guatemala, or nearly double the size of Tasmania or Ireland. And today, As the fires continue across the country, the total impact on our wildlife and unique environment is slowly coming to light. While the crisis is ongoing right now, the fact is these fires have to stop sometime and nature will then rebuild itself. Someone who knows pretty much everything about this is Professor Christopher Dickman. Now, it's been widely reported that by December, 480 million animals had lost their lives in the New South Wales fires alone. Professor Dickman is the ecologist who originally calculated that number. He's from the School of Life Environmental Sciences at the University of Sydney, and he's had more than 30 years' experience working on the ecology, conservation and management of Australian mammals. Plus, he's written several books on the topic and held several very prestigious positions in the scientific community, including on the Species Survival Commission of the IUCN. We're really lucky to have him with us today to get his take on this situation. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Rochelle. My pleasure. Good to be with you. Excellent. Now, you estimate that at least 480 million animals have been lost in New South Wales since September when the fires first started burning. This figure is only for mammals, birds and reptiles, and it doesn't include insects, bats or frogs. How did you calculate this figure? Yeah, so the original figure was calculated using previously published and unpublished um, estimates of density. So we got um, all the published literature we could find. We we got um, PhD theses. We uh, we looked at um, our own field 
notes and observations to derive as many estimates of density that we could find for mammals, birds and reptiles in New South Wales. And from those density estimates, we just derived some simple averages for, um, for different habitats. And then when you know the density of animals per, uh, per area, you can begin to multiply out by the area that's been disturbed. For the original report, this was done uh, some 10 or 12 years ago, to look at the effects of land clearing. So we simply multiplied the numbers of animals per hectare by the area of land that had been approved for clearing. And we've used the same methodology to multiply the, the densities of the mammals and birds and reptiles by the area burned. The 480 million figure was actually calculated a couple of weeks ago when only 3 million hectares of forest had burned in New South Wales. And the figure's been updated recently to 800 million because of the, the increase in fire, intent, fire extent. It's now 5 million hectares. And that's just for New South Wales? That's just New South Wales. Unbelievable. We, yeah, if you make a reasonable assumption that the densities of, um, of the various species and species groups in New South Wales were approximately similar in Victoria, because the habitats there are similar, it's, it's a neighbouring state, um, you can add in the additional area that's been burned in Victoria, and that's currently 1.25 million hectares. And when you do that, you come to an estimate that is over a billion mammals, birds and frogs, uh, mammals, birds and reptiles that um, have been affected, killed by the, by the bushfires. We've actually always had fires, though. Why are these ones different from an ecological perspective? I think that the big difference is that animal populations were already stressed when the, when the fires began in September 2019. They were stressed because of the very long-term drought and the drought also had the effect, of course, of making it much more suitable for the fires to take hold. So, yeah, the, all these harrowing images of um, stock that were had nothing to eat on um, on the rangelands and, uh, and the tablelands earlier in uh, 2019. The situation continued; it continued to dry out towards the end of the year, and then we got um, increasingly hotter conditions, which really set the scene for these these incredible mega fires that we're seeing. And it was taking a toll of already stressed animal populations. So I think it's that's part of the part of the answer. But I think also because the fires are so intense and have moved so quickly, they've been particularly devastating. And whereas in the past there was more chance for animals to find refuges that hadn't burned in the landscape or to, to move away or go underground to escape them, um, those tactics probably won't have been as effective in this, this current, uh, current fire season. In the past 200 years, 34 species and subspecies of native animals of native mammals have become extinct here. This is the highest rate of loss for any region in the world. Do you think any of these fires may have made more species extinct around you know, specifically Kangaroo Island? Yeah, I think there's a, a fairly high chance of that, unfortunately. Um, yeah, certainly the Kangaroo Island Dunart has been in the news recently. Mm. It's a, a scarce, elusive species anyway. There were some seen yesterday. I had a, um, an email from Heidi who's, who looks after them over there. And yes. um, yeah. they caught them on trail cams yesterday, but that was before. That's fantastic. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I know that um, Pat Hodgins, who has been doing a lot of work on the Dunart down there, recently captured a number of, uh, of Dunarts on, on cameras, but that was in an area that, uh, that then burned. Oh. 
Yeah, they, they may survive in uh, in small unburned pockets and then recover and recolonize. But um, yeah, we won't really be able to say definitively until we're able to go back into the burned areas and, and find out what is there. And uh, other species like the, the glossy black cockatoo, of course, are potentially at risk. Yeah. And that's on Kangaroo Island. But the news this morning of the, the megafire that's joined up in, in eastern Victoria, southern New South Wales, that's in an area where another narrow range endemic mammal occurs, the long-footed potteroo. And it's possible that um, its habitat will be burned out too. And donuts are a little bit more um, more opportunistic in their use of habitat. They don't mind, to some extent, regenerating habitats after fire. Potteroos tend to prefer moister, heavier understory, denser understory um, parts of the forest. And if these are removed by the fire, it's going to be pretty tough, I think, for the potteroo. Horrible. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah, the numbers are horrible and the, the potential for extinctions is, is a real real worry. The amount of destruction all across Australia is beggaring belief, for, especially for us animal lovers who just can't get our heads around it, as you can see with me. Yeah. But, but one thing that we've seen after past bushfires is that nature can and will rebuild itself. How does this process of regeneration unfold and when can we expect it to start? Yeah, it's, uh, nature will bounce back, there's no doubt. And the process will probably start really when we get some decent rains. That will stimulate the the growth of, um, of plants that have managed to survive the fires. Eucalypts, I guess, in particular, are the, the most well-known for being fire-adapted and to, for coming through a, a fire. Um, not unscathed, but um, with the ability to bounce back through coming up from the base if they've got underground storage organs or epicormic shoots that uh, that come out from the trunks. And, of course, heavy rains will, will stimulate the germination of grass seeds and herbs and so on and um, and other seeds that are able to blow in from uh, from outside. So there will be uh, will be recovery. It'll probably be stimulated by, um, by rainfall. And if we're lucky and that happens quickly, then it'll mean that there will be an opportunity for the consumer organisms to come in, the, the insects, the other invertebrates, the birds, the mammals, and so on. Um, and that'll be sped up particularly if there do happen to be unburned refuges within the, the burned area. And when the fire goes through, it'll kill most things in its wake because of the intensity of, of the current fire season. But if there are unburned areas where small mammals, lizards and so on can, um, can hole up in safety. As soon as the vegetation begins to regrow beyond in the previously burned areas, they'll start to move out and make use of it. Particularly the opportunistic species, the, the native, uh, some of the native rodents, for example, some of the insectivorous marsupials will, uh, will be out and about when the vegetation recovery is underway. There are some actual plant species, though. They propagate by fire, though. Will that be of any benefit? Yeah, they do indeed. So species um, such as some of the banksias, the uh, the needlewoods, the, the hakeas, they they flower, they produce their uh, their seeds above ground, and they hold them above ground in these very very tough um, seed pods. And the seed pods are stimulated to crack open and release the seeds when hot fires go through. So provided the uh, the seeds can themselves can survive the fires the seeds will be dropped freshly onto the ground. There'll be an ash bed for them. And when it rains, the conditions should be pretty good for them to uh, to get going with, uh, with new germination. 
Oh, that's good. We actually have 300 different species of mammal here in Australia, and they are no stranger to fire. Mm. But what are some of the more resilient animals that we have? Yeah, so I, I guess there are two two aspects to resilience. Um, one is resilience in the face of the, the fires themselves. So resilient animals or resilient individuals may be the ones that are able to detect an oncoming fire front and take some sort of evasive action to, to get away from it. They might um, fly away if they're birds, they'll hop away if they're uh, big mammals. They might go underground if they're, uh, if they're small mammals. So there's resilience in, in that sense that they can cope with the immediate consequence of the fire. And then there are, there's another aspect of resilience, and that is the ability of populations to bounce back. And to some extent, it, it follows from having uh, resilient individuals in the population. But a, a resilient population will be one that's able to move back into an area that's been burned after it's starting to regenerate, after the rains have fallen and so on. And resilient species, some examples might include bushrats, um, some of the native um, small marsupials, the insectivorous species that um, really don't mind too much what sort of habitat they've got, as long as there's a bit of cover for them to shelter from predation. Mm. I don't know how true this bit is, but I read somewhere that kangaroos in particular have a behaviour where they'll try to you know, hop away from the fires and then after a while something in them clicks and they turn around and then they charge at the fire because they want to get to the burnt area behind the fire front. I don't know how true that is. Is Have you heard of that before? Is this legitimate? And are there any specific behaviours that you've heard of that animals will do that are just specific to the fires? Yeah, um, that's true. Um, certainly, kangaroos have been um, have been seen to do that. Um, emus are another large species that have been uh, been seen to do that. But it does seem to be in situations where the fire front is much well, much smaller, and perhaps during cool season burns, that's when you might expect to see animals doubling back through the flames. Whether it's something that's that's really thought out and they think okay i'm going to be safe behind the behind the fire front where it's already burned yeah, maybe i'm projecting there <laughs> yeah it, uh, we don't really know but uh, certainly there, there have been observations of, uh, of animals doing just that i think in the current fires because the fires are so intense there's so much smoke swirling around as well that um any animals that do end up doubling back towards the fires probably do so by mistake because they're they're going to be walking walking to the doom for sure you mentioned the smoke, and we've here in Sydney we've had so much of it for months now. Canberra as well has been cited as having the worst air quality in the world. The thing is, we live in these cities, but we also have birds and animals living right here alongside us. How is this air pollution likely to affect our urban critters? Yeah, that's an interesting question. As far as I know, there's been hardly any research on on the effects of smoke on on wildlife. Yeah, just anecdotally, it, um, yeah, the flying foxes in the park at the bottom of the street here, are, they're, um, they're just as numerous as they have been since the fires began. Oh. Smoke started wafting into Sydney. Birds are, uh, are all hanging around in the uh, in the back garden too, in um, in similar numbers as before the, the fires went through. I suspect that the smoke per se doesn't have a, a great effect on them. It's anecdotal, but um, I don't have any research that's been carried out to determine that. It's a good question. 
I like this though. That's a nice answer. <laughs> like it's positive. <laughs> we don't think it affects them. <laughs> we like that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you mentioned bats a moment ago in, in your neighbourhood right now. We've got plenty of them. But the heat waves, I think one especially last year and earlier this year, they've been taking a massive toll on bat numbers around Australia. There's actually even been some fears that there could be a mass extinction event. Is the fires affecting this or is it elsewhere at the moment? Yeah. yeah. I, the, um, the flying foxes, I, I guess, are the, is the species group that's been most in the news recently. Uh, they were dying during the, the long-term drought mm. and they, they don't really cope when the temperature gets above 41, 42 degrees. They just can't lose enough heat. And, yeah, on, on really hot days um, underneath a bat colony you'll find piles of dead bats it's really really horrible to to see so they were getting stressed before the fires came about and it's perhaps only the um, only the bats that were fortunate enough to live near bodies of water where they could uh, come out and, and swoop down and, and take some of the water and uh, i hadn't realized that the flying foxes do this to a great extent which, which might be my lack of knowledge about the flying foxes. But just by the university, University of Sydney is Victoria Park. And there's a fly-out where the, the bats come through from uh, from Centennial Park. They uh, they move onto the campus to eat the figs in the trees on the campus. But before they get there, they um, they take a big drink at Victoria Park, or they were anyway, during the, the very um, dry conditions and oh. the hot conditions that preceded the fires. I have to go down there with water. my camera. Hmm. That's awesome. I didn't even know yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's the first time I'd seen it too. So it might be an unusual behaviour, or maybe I hadn't been observing before. But um, it may be that where there is a, a ready source of water, the bats can help to reduce their um, their heat stress by uh, by taking access by getting access to the water and using it um, in evaporative cooling. We don't really know. But still on the subject of bats, the fires are certainly affecting them. There are patches of little rainforest that um, that the bats use quite heavily. They've burned. There are, I think, at least one colony site that um, that has burned, so the bats won't be able to return to that. And then if you look beyond the flying foxes, there are all the little forest bats. And because we couldn't get any density estimates for any of these little guys, we don't know how many are likely to have fallen victim to the fires. Mm. But almost certainly it's going to be, the numbers are going to be huge. And if you if you take a bat trap into any unburned patch of forest on the east coast of Australia on, on a good night with a bit of humidity and a bit of warmth, you'll get heaps of bats, dozens of bats mm. in the trap. And all of these, are they use the forest, they, they forage among the foliage uh, for insects, they roost under the bark, or they roost in, in small hollows in the trees. They can be critically affected by these, by these intense fires. We haven't, haven't got any idea, we haven't had a factor in mortality rate for these, these small insectivorous species. What role do they play in propagating and regenerating the forests? The insectivorous bats probably don't play a great role in regeneration. They're all insectivorous or virtually all insectivorous. So they'll, um, they'll maintain uh, flying invertebrate populations at uh, lower levels. The flying foxes, on the other hand, are very important in that they, um, they stick their heads into flowers and get pollen all over their heads. So they're very important as pollinators. And they also distribute seeds. 
um, seeds come out the other end mm. and uh, when the bats fly around, the seeds are dispersed to uh, to other localities. So without these the bigger bats, it may well be that components of the, um, of the literal rainforests um, and other forest types will regenerate much more slowly if they've been burned. Mm. Okay, so you have 30 years' experience working on the ecology, conservation and management of Aussie mammals. What do you wish everyone knew about our wildlife? Um, I think uh, in a nutshell, I'd, I'd probably say that I wish more people knew more about our wildlife. And I think over the years, I've, I've never failed to be surprised that so little appears to be known about our wildlife. And granted, a lot of it is nocturnal. The mammals are primarily nocturnal. We certainly know more about the birds. But Australia's got, as we said earlier, the world's highest extinction rate for mammals. Very few people know that. We've got some of the world's most beautiful, charismatic and bizarre mammals as well. And people don't seem to know that really beyond koalas, kangaroos and wombats. Mm. We had this incredible, amazing, diverse fauna. Just one example, the commonest small mammal in eastern Australia is almost certainly a small marsupial. It's uh, in the genus Antichinus. In fact, there are 15 species in the genus. They, um, they occur all over eastern Australia, across the top end um, into and into the southwest of WA. On the east coast, they're very abundant, and they're particularly well-known, at least in the scientific community, because they've got the most bizarre and odd life cycle among all the mammals. The life history is, is kind of clockwork. There's a two-week mating frenzy every year, and immediately afterwards, the females ovulate, and all the all the eggs are fertilised, and at the same time, all the males are dead. They've just dropped dead oh. after the mating frenzy. So the females ovulate. They they may have a litter of eight, ten, or twelve young, depending on the species. And virtually every litter will have been fathered by multiple males. So there's genetic diversity mm. in the in the litter. There are no males in the population until the young that have appeared in the uh, that have been born and and then hang on in the, in the mother's pouch, until they become independent months later, there are no males in the population at all. And this whole cycle is repeated exactly at the same time every year, year on year, uh, year on year out. What's their so common name? Antichinus. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they're called marsupial mice because they're okay. about, um, some of them are about the size of mice, but they've got much pointier noses. They're differently coloured. They've got um, very differently shaped feet that allow them to climb trees and, and swan about in the canopy above ground. But they're absolutely bizarre and the most common mammal in eastern Australia. And to give you an, an example of how little we know about our wildlife, every year for about 20 years while I was teaching second-year biology students, I'd ask the students at the end of their second year, can you name me before we get going on, on the lectures? Um, three Australian mammals have gone, that have gone extinct. And some classes could, often they couldn't. And can you can you name three Australian mammals that are at risk of future extinction? And again, some some classes could, but, but usually they couldn't. And then I said, well, can you tell me a, a really common marsupial? What would be your your idea of the most common marsupial around around Sydney? and on the east coast and i don't know there was one class in 20 years wow so second year biology students don't know these 
basic things about our wildlife. I think that's my my greatest wish. It is that um, the population at large would know much more about our wildlife because it is absolutely fascinating. It's unique. It's endemic. It's it's charismatic. It's incredibly diverse. We've got some of the world's richest reptile communities. We've got wonderful frogs, um, things like the southern corroboree frog. You look at that and it takes your breath away. Mm. And <laughs> I guess my greatest wish would be that we know more about this wonderful fauna. And I think if people had this really deep, visceral connection to our wildlife, then um, we'd be, uh, I guess we'd be very concerned about um, the amounts of land clearing that go on um, and about some of the other things that um, that really seem to be destroying much of much of the, the natural habitats where these species occur. I guess all we can do is we can just keep spreading the word amongst ourselves and, and educating people where we can. Oh, yeah, I think these podcasts like this, um, Rochelle, these are just so valuable and uh, I really appreciate the, the opportunity to, uh, to, to speak with you, oh, thank on, these, you. on these issues. I have one last question, though, before we go. Mm, sure. Given this crisis... We know that the, the earth will regenerate slowly with rain, but are you confident that in time the animals and bush can bounce back to where we were before or will things have changed? Yeah, I, I think um, a lot of the bush will bounce back, there's no doubt. There may well be the, the losses, the extinctions of, um, of already threatened species that we, that we talked about before. But I think, um, in general, the bush will recover. It will regenerate. The only um, the only caveat that um, I put in there is that in some of the areas that have been really heavily disturbed by the fires, may well be areas where weed species find it easy to invade, or some of the other invasive um, mammal species. For example, there are six species of deer that occur in eastern Australia. They're pretty mobile, um, and it may well be that they take advantage of the the opportunity afforded by um, green new green grass mm. growing up when it rains in um, in burned areas. So I think we need to be vigilant about um, keeping an eye on what is coming back because ideally we really want to retain the native biodiversity and that will bounce back in many areas. Um, it may be in some situations though we need to give it a bit of assistance to do so. Mm. Well thank you so much for your time today Chris. Amazing to talk to you. You have put my mind at rest quite a lot. It's it's quite heartening to know that, you know, things may be a little different, but we will we'll get back to where we want to yeah, be. Yeah, so. we'll, we'll have an Australian environment still to, uh, to appreciate and enjoy. Amazing. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much. No animal has been more in the spotlight this fire season than the koala, with 25,000 of them perishing in the Kangaroo Island blazes and around 8,400 lost in northern New South Wales alone so far. But the thing is, koalas were already in serious trouble before these fires, thanks to widespread habitat loss. Some experts were even going so far as to describe them as functionally extinct even before these fires started. But while that claim has largely been disputed, the fact remains that after these fires, koalas are at serious risk because their main food source, the eucalyptus, has been decimated. Now, while the threat of starvation is frighteningly real, it's not all doom and gloom because organisations like Aussie Ark are setting up new wild tracts of land to secure koala habitat and at the same time build an insurance population of them. Here, Aussie Ark's president and general manager, Tim Faulkner, reveals how they will turn things around for our fluffy little icons. Hey, Tim, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining us. 
Thank you. Now, koalas have endured catastrophic loss in recent years. In fact, they reckon that in 30 years, this population may actually go extinct. What's causing this decline? Yeah, well, let's get the elephant out of the room and talk about catastrophic fire events um, because they have the impact that we've all witnessed. But it needs to be noted, as as you sensibly said, that they're on a trajectory to be extinct in New South Wales by 2050. So there are real problems before these fires started. And the problems overarchingly are loss of habitat, disease, feral pests, uh, road strike, um, fragmentation, attacks by domestic dogs. Um, it's, it's, it's a really big problem. And, you know, the things with these species that have this massive range, because, you know, you wouldn't call from Cairns to Tasmania monotypic, but when you get from sort of Queensland, you know, southern Queensland down to Victoria, there's a, a big range of species like platypus, tiger quoll, fascagale, koala, and it goes on and on. And so there's a lot of them that are in this. And, you know, they're the species that we called common uh, you know, but the compounding effects of everything we just mentioned and the mass loss of fire is just, uh, is, I mean, in the fire basically, you know, it's probably radically increased their trajectory for extinction. You, I, I, look, I'm talking out of school, but you could bring the 2050 back to 2040 or something like that. That's absolutely excruciating. I can't even get my head around it with the catastrophic losses in Kangaroo Island and with us losing 8,400 up north. Once these fires have been put out, though, what kind of risks and threats will the koalas be facing? Yeah, so the, the, if they were lucky enough or unlucky enough to survive, you know, that's, that's when the, the, the hardship comes. And I guess addressing that initially, you know, society's expectation and there's a genuine need for initially fires to be put out, you know, RFS, rescue rehab, um, to, you know, to, to help those injured koalas, get them back in the wild if they can. In terms of the real long-term conservation outcomes, that's when the work starts, um, you know, and if those koalas can be put back out, wonderful. And beyond that, you know, I mean, look, i just give you an example. Uh, yesterday, I was out with uh, the Office of Environment and Heritage doing an assessment and intervention of the endangered Manning River turtle, and the, 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 the one I make a point on is the brush-tailed rock wallaby. These wallabies are, are dying. I saw it. There are some that are alive. They're all down clinging to pools of water. But the wallabies that are dying aren't even in fire-affected areas. To give you an idea, they are starving to death. They are moved from where they need to be. They're down near water. They're vulnerable to predators because it's not their preferred habitat. So when you put fire through, you just exacerbate that 50 times. There's no food. And what I saw yesterday that was just tragic was that there was a wallaby dead next to the water. And, you know, I sort of just had it in my head that they'll cling on. They'll eat the bark off trees. They just need water, you know. But it wasn't the case. And so when you go through and wipe these fires out, I mean, if there are koalas that survived, they'll either move into other areas that are unburnt. And if they can't, I guess what they're praying for is epicormic growth. And if the trees haven't been incinerated to the point that they can't grow back, epicormic growth is when the tree shoots out, rather than growing branches or limbs, etc., it just sprouts leaves out from its core so that it can obtain sunlight and do what it does. Um, and that's fodder for the koalas. But you know, you need rain for that and you need the trees to still be alive for that. And the reality is, to answer your question in the short version, is um, the koalas that are left starve. It's just, I can't even get my head around it. Sorry, it makes me really emotional. 
One thing that does keep me buoyant is you are starting the Koala Arc. Now, you guys have had incredible success with your Tasmanian Devil Arc project, and that's by building an insurance population. Tell me about what you guys will be doing this year with Koala Arc. Yeah, so, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Devil's an insurance population because, you know, conservation is really intricate. Um, and, I, and I guess there's three kind of platforms that we work in. And, you know, in history, very often, they, there hasn't been a great interconnectedness. And that's not to say that we're pioneering the way. Um, but historically, it's been a bit of a, you know, the, the captive components are detached from the in-situ components or detached from, they're detached from the academic components. And, you know, a far more unified approach is needed and happening. Um, and so for us, I just talked through very quickly three platforms and then come to the koala. We, we really excel in species management. And species management is recovery programs, in, i.e. insurance population, genetic management, harvest stock for wild translocations. Then you go to habitat recovery. In our case, we are a fundamental believer in fences as a necessary tool for conservation. They bring connotations to people of captivity. But the thing is, I don't want my kids only to see wildlife behind fences. But without the fence at the moment, my kids won't be seeing any wildlife. Mm. So the fence is there to keep feral pests out, not to keep the natives in. And the IUCN Red List now, uh, you know, proudly and sensibly talks and recognises fenced areas as the wild. The fence is no different than an island. We look at Lord Howe Island and call it the wild, but it's surrounded by a sea of ocean. But if we fenced in an area that big, some people would still call it captivity. What's the difference? And so, same as the national park. If an animal leaves the national park, it's in agriculture. It's a fence. It's a virtual barrier. And so, the thing is, you go to, to habitat recovery. Now we're talking about rewilding, protecting who's there, uh, protecting against the threat of fire, protecting against the threat of ferals. Um, you know, and aside from the animals that are flagship species that are either rewilded or beneficiaries, you've got a whole raft, you know, a whole ecosystem that is a benefit of having no feral pests, no feral graziers, uh, controlled fire, uh, weed management, um, etc. And the natives doing what they do in terms of the ecosystem. Um, the third tier is, of course, in situ, which is the wild areas themselves. And for the koalas, for us, realistically, species management, there's a thousand koalas in captivity in Australia. We know how to manage them in that component. What we need is a secondary step, which is habitat management or habitat recovery. So for us, we've now got Barrington Wildlife Sanctuary, it's 500 hectares. We've got another one across the road, 500 hectares. And we're in the process of securing another 4,250 hectares. So between them, you now talk, what are we up there? Uh, we call it 6,000 hectares, close yeah. to um, 5,500. So you're talking now that the region that we live in is koala habitat. Let's conservatively say that um, the 5,000 hectares, let's conservatively say that half that is preferred koala habitat, 2,500 hectares. In preferred koala habitat, koala home range is 2 hectares. Um, half the 2,500, you end up with 1,025. That's the number of koalas that we can protect by those measures. Fire, feral pest, feral weed, um, it, it, it's really significant. And so even in our 500-hectare sanctuary, um, we've got a, a population of 20 koalas in there. That'll get up around 50, 60. Um, it's 20 because the sanctuary is only recently fenced. Um, it's had all of those pressures. And so what we'll need to do is manage like a meta population, which means we'll have mass inbreeding in an enclosure that's only got 20 koalas. Of course. 
Once the others are all online, we start in mixed genetics. And there's a level of species recovery, but it's not like um, the species recovery unit of the ARC, which is more one-on-one type breeding pairs, etc. It's a far less hands-on um, type management system. And then you go to in situ, well, you know, it took me a lot of years to settle down from wanting to save the world, and I still want to, um, but what I want to do is do what we do right in our part of the world. And if there was more of us, um, or there are champions out there, but, you know, if we nail species recovery and we nail habitat recovery and we work on the in situ components in and around the greater Barrington's region, that's a really significant outcome. It's a phenomenal outcome. What can we expect to see from you guys in the next few months in terms of like your short-term goals? Uh, our short-term goals are that, you know, we've just brought our 500-hectare uh, sanctuary on and we're actually in the next month, um, maybe a tiny bit more, um, you'll see the release of animals from the species recovery component into those areas, uh, quolls, bandicoots, potteroos, brush-tailed rock wallabies, etc. At the same time, we're fencing in our 500 hectares across the road, but that'll take the best part of a year to fence, eradicate the ferals. And whilst that's happening, we're securing and moving to now fencing 4,500 hectares. You know, uh, to fence in a 500 hectare block, it's 10 k's of fence, 150 bucks a metre. It's a $1.5 million job, but it lasts 40 years. Mm-hmm. By that point, we'll fence it again. Um, but the good that's achieved through that is, is just massive. So the, the thing for us, we're out there in situ. Yesterday, you know, we, with, with government, OEH, we uh, assessed the food drops, monitoring cameras for brush tail rock wallabies in situ. We relocated... Uh, uh, 33 endangered Manning River turtles from a certain death. They probably would have died today in Muddy Wallows. Oh. Took them upstream to a bigger hole. We collected our first three for insurance population. Um, on the other side of the range, we've moved over 100 Hunter River turtles from a certain death into deeper holes. We've rescued nine plats. Many have died. Platypus, it's, mm. it's very sad. But we've rescued nine. We've got five in care that are awaiting release once they're back up to health. That's the in situ. Um, the habitat recovery, we've got our animals being released. We're busy, you know, and it's good stuff. You guys, you are incredibly busy. This is a very hard time for all of us, emotionally crippling for many of us. What is keeping you and your team going? Well, look, even if I I sound happy on this or, you know, like, geez, he should be sadder, I'm sad. But you have to channel that, right? Because you, you can't bring back what's burnt and you can't bring back those that have died we can rebuild community we can rebuild conservation and the job starts now once the fires i shouldn't say once they're out they're not out um but you know we have to start and rebuild that's where my focus is and that's that's how i sleep at night um and i'm sure a lot of people do the same but what keeps us going is the good that we're achieving again we can't stop the fires we can't take back the damage that they have caused but we can do our part and we can do it well and we can see it through and that's what keeps us going You're a ledger, mate. Thank you so much for your time today. We'll catch up with you again once you guys have got everything settled or even just progress report with with Koala Ark. But um, in the meantime, keep on keeping on and stay strong. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I'm just about to head back up to the Barrington shortly. Thanks, mate. While Australia's wild animals have been widely affected, livestock and captive animals in sanctuaries, zoos and refuges have also been at grave risk. Mogo Wildlife Park on the south coast of New South Wales made global headlines when images of its giraffes surrounded by fire came to light as the 31,000 hectare Clyde Mountain blaze threatened its perimeter on New Year's Eve. 
Park director Chad Staples and his team fought around the clock to protect the 200 plus animals who call that park home. And thanks to their brave efforts, not a single animal was lost. Here, Chad reveals how the rescue unfolded and he also shares some exciting plans for the park in the wake of this crisis. Hey, Chad, thanks so much for joining us today. That's my pleasure. So let's get started with the day that it happened. When the town of Mogo was evacuated, you and your team stayed behind to defend the animals. Was that always your plan? Yes. So I think like any any home, any business, anything that's under fire, there, there has to be a plan and we certainly had one and we executed it. When the town of Mogo was, I think, almost ordered to evacuate at 6am, that's when the plan sort of kicked into gear. But, I mean, to go an extra step in, you know, saying that people decided to stay, people came to help defend. It wasn't mm. like they were already here. They made a conscious decision to still come in. So the staff here are phenomenal. That's pretty amazing that they would actually, yeah. you know, put their own selves at risk for that. Exactly right. Mogo Wildlife Park is home to Australia's largest collection of primates and there's an area of the park called Primate Islands. I love that place. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's where you've got your cotton-top tamarins and ring-tailed lemurs living in a fairly wild environment. How did you get those guys to safety? No, the safest place for them was on the island. So if uh, thankfully where that area is, obviously being an island, it means you're surrounded by water, so there was a little bit of a buffer. The bottom islands, as you would remember, the Siamangs, that that was a little bit of a concern um, because of the size of the trees that were there. But again, ultimately, we we tried to protect animals where they were because it's, I guess, less stressful to them. Mm. There were a few things that were um, caught up and put into carry boxes and brought up to my house, but they were smaller primates than that. So, yeah, some marmosets. Uh, some tamarins, and the biggest animals actually were the red pandas. But again, that was more about where their enclosures sat in proximity to the zoo and where we could protect. And in the end, it was a very wise decision because there were some huge trees that were on fire outside of our property but really did threaten to fall into it. So you actually had the red pandas and the tamarins and a couple of monkeys in your house? Yeah, that's right. So the house is in a central part of the wildlife park. So it was decided that it would be an easier place to defend than where their enclosures were. We could put resources there if we had to be. It was one of the alternate spots that all the staff would retreat to if we had to. What about the bigger animals? Is it even possible to evacuate a pride of lions or tigers or did you keep them in situ? No, all kept where they were, but the plan with them was to get them into their night dens, which is, again, easier to to defend than a a larger enclosure. Mm. Um, We were able to feed them, able to give them fresh water and virtually shelter them from, I guess, a lot of the stresses that were going on around. The park itself is pretty massive. It spans 81 acres or about 33 hectares of bushland. How were you able to ensure that every corner of the park was safe? Did you uh, It was patrol? just a lot of people patrolling, that's right. So, you know, six o'clock, the, the first part of the plan was to get water onto everything you possibly could. Now, again, obviously you can't water down that many acres of ground, but you can look for real potential spots. You know, we border the, the Tomican River and all along that, you know, there's a beautiful strip of um, 
trees along there and you know understory and things so that was always going to be an issue and so we got water into areas that were possible to do so but then yeah as you said it, it was just being vigilant it was people driving around in small vehicles keepers going to areas of the park and thankfully we have great radio system through so everyone was able to communicate no one went anywhere by themselves and if anyone saw anything then they made radio calls and and talked and we sent resources where they had to be with the staff coming in and the given you know the firestorm around you guys surely you all must have been scared out of your minds what kept you actually going well, I think it's you've got a job to do. To be honest, you know we we were here to protect, you know, family. Like this collection, like if if you're a zookeeper, or I guess if you're one that really does it for the right reasons and is passionate, like you do it because these animals mean the world to you. So what we were doing was protecting those that couldn't protect themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think having that goal in mind. And always having something to do. Of course, there would have been times when every single person was scared beyond belief. It was a frightening situation. But you had something to do. I think it would have been far scary if you were just bunkered down somewhere, not doing anything. That, that to me, sounds more terrifying. Mm. Your photo of the giraffes with the blaze behind them it yeah. moved so many of us to tears. It yeah. was really one of the, the most confronting images early on in the crisis. Yeah. How were they behaving in that time? I mean, it looks like they could even just be grazing. Were they being erratic yeah. or? No, right at that moment, no. And it was a pretty odd moment for me too because there was, like as it was all getting very, very serious, it probably got even worse in about half an hour after I took that image where the sky really stopped even being red and went to black. It was just everywhere. Um, at, but at that point, no, they were okay. So with the the plan with you know the large ungulate species so um, when you start talking about giraffe and zebra and rhino is they needed more access so what we did with all their big paddocks on that side of the park is that we gave them access to everywhere and all of those yards have multiple gates so it means that they can move around almost in a circular motion and put themselves where they're more comfortable so the crazy thing is even with that fire right there, the giraffe at that moment were comfortable in that spot even though they could be further away. There were points when I certainly saw them running and you know, not that that's unusual, but running in a motion to get away, but it never developed into that frantic panic, I don't know what to do. They all just moved together to an another spot in that area you actually house the zebras too don't you and you do have some other ungulates in there with them but i didn't really see them in the images were they still around well they i think they just work in a group or stay within the group the zebra i think were just out of that sort of camera shot but Mm. they were certainly in amongst them yeah what about the other animals in general like how do they react to the threat of fire like surely they can smell it and instinct would kick in did you detect any change in behavior or notice anything really interesting about maybe alarm calls or anything like that from some of the species? Surprisingly not, but again, I guess when you really think about it, we've been sitting in a smoke plume for a month now. Mm. So it wasn't like on that day it was the first time they smelled smoke because I think that could become – I think that in itself would be something. But what 
we've actually had is a long lead up to this. So I didn't see any real alarm calls or anything from our collection. But where we sit, we're actually quite close to some properties with large amounts of cattle. And there were times when you heard them crying out. Oh, man, that's horrible. Sorry, <laughs> it just makes me emotional. No. I don't know. <laughs> um, no, and I was the same. You, you know, being an animal lover, you know the difference between calls, even if they're mm. not yours. And they were those terror calls. It's just awful. The good news for you guys, though, is with all of your hard work, not a single animal was lost during these fires. That's yep. yeah, That was a combined effort of your amazing team. But as summer yep. rolls on, the threat of bushfires continues. I mean, we're only really at the very beginning of bushfire season. How are you guys preparing for what could potentially come? Uh, I guess the same way we prepared for that day on New Year's Eve. We're just super vigilant on, on hot days, on windy days. We are now very aware that a spot fire can just almost spontaneously erupt. And so that that's what we will remain to do. Our equipment worked. We have made small refinements with systems and tasks assigned and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, you, you learn these things as you go along. Um, but it, it's really do, do what we did that day again if we have to. How can we get involved to help you out? Like not just now, everybody's donating fiercely, which is phenomenal. But my fear is that in the months after this rush is over and we get the rains and everything, you guys are all having to rebuild. I mean, Mogo was wiped out. There's so much we all need to do. What would you guys specifically need from us? To be honest, what we're doing and what we're raising funds for is to actually set up a a new wildlife hospital that is – not for our collection, but for the wild animals, because they're the ones that I guess don't have the heroes that Mogo Wildlife Park had. Um, we want to, it's going to go on for a long time, like you said. And even just this burn that's gone through, what it will cause is a prolonged effect on the wildlife because there's no food out there, um, you know, little to no shelter and all these other aspects. So the, the thing right now is, you know, burns and stress and you know some of the disease and symptoms that are related to smoke but this will continue on and what we'll be treating will will change so i think where we are really going to work for our community and an area will be to be a place where those animals can be brought and where they can be treated and rehabilitated and then returned when when it's when it's possible that is fantastic once you guys are up and running we'll do another follow-up story with you to check in and see how you're going in the meantime that would be magic yeah and in the meantime though we'll um we'll stay on your facebook and i'll direct people to your website so we can um get everybody involved to help out and we'll come and visit too i think that's really important do that well and i think it's wonderful like i think like you said this has been a really good story in a pretty bleak situation and it's something that i think the whole community is grabbing onto you know we need some good news so i'm so pleased that it's this so Mm. so many people have been here before and no individual animals oh yeah absolutely come back and see them and check that they're okay how's quinoa is he still around 
<laughs> of course he's still around. Okay, good. I'm looking at him right now. Are you? <laughs> Just for our listeners, Quinoa is the, um, a, a tiger. He's a young Sumatran tiger who um, he has hip problems, doesn't he? And he was kind of abandoned by his mum, I think. Yeah, well, th- yeah. He, it had to be stepped in and sort of helped to raise him because there was an issue and that can often be, you know, mums can be pretty harsh and mm. in nature. But, yeah, no, he's an amazing – you wouldn't even know he had an issue. He's just – He's a lovely. Guy. He's a yep. lovely dude. I'd, I'll have to come down and visit him again. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time today, Chad. Oh, thank you. Good luck with everything. Cheers. Thanks. In the months after the fires, there's a chance we still might encounter wild animals with burns or sicknesses related to smoke inhalation and dehydration. So – Here's Dennis with some great tips from Wires to explain exactly what you can do to help them. If you're out and about and you run into a sick, distressed, orphaned or injured animal, first and foremost, try to contact the appropriate rescue organisation in your state, like Wires in New South Wales or Wildlife Victoria if you're further south. But if that's not an immediate option, there are several things you can do. Keep a large cardboard box and towel in your car so you can safely contain the animal without putting yourself in any danger. If the animal has been burnt, don't attempt to feed it. Gently wrap it up in a loose towel or cotton sheet, place it in a ventilated box and take it to your nearest vet. And if you're holding it while waiting for a rescuer to arrive, keep it in a dark, quiet place. And never approach injured snakes, large kangaroos, adult wombats, birds of prey or goannas, as they can be aggressive if they're in pain. Just call in the experts. For more tips and to donate to the New South Wales Wildlife Information Rescue and Education Service, visit www.wires.org.au. Thanks for listening. As this bushfire season continues, it can be tricky to know exactly how to help. But it's something that we can all do, whether that's as involved as completing a volunteer rescue course or as simple as leaving bowls of water out for our furry and feathery friends, or even if that's donating a few dollars when you can afford it. It all really helps. If you'd like to show your support for Aussie Ark and their Koala Ark project, head to aussieark.org.au. To find out more about Mogo Wildlife Park's upcoming wildlife hospital, you can keep an eye on their social media and their website, which is mogozoo.com.au. To support wildlife rescue efforts on the ground, there are plenty of organisations to get involved with. But start with WIRES and Wildlife Victoria. And also, please check out the GoFundMe pages for the Kangaroo Island Dunart and also Kangaroo Island's Koalas and Wildlife. I'll post all these links up on faunagraphic.com so you can click straight through. Thanks again for your company. I'll catch up with you again in a few months with Season 3 of the Wildlives podcast. In the meantime, take care, mates. Wild Lives by Fornographic. Check out our wildlife photo gallery at fornographic.com and on Instagram at fornographic. Mm.